0: The the people that you meet each day. We are in the middle of our Love Where You Live series. We started back in the fall with the art of neighboring, and we said, hey, Jesus gives us the greatest commandment, and he wants us to take it seriously, and he wants us to take it literally. And so we began, as a church, beginning to love where you live. I hope you are loving where you live. I know on our street we had our first uh, neighborhood group last week. We actually did week one and two. We did two sessions and uh, we just had a great time. It took longer than anyone expected because we just had great conversation. We were just hanging out, getting, getting to enjoy each other's company, and, and we're going to have our third session this evening. So I want to encourage you to get out there and love your neighbors. Love where you live because this is the most basic commandment. Jesus boils, boils it all down to this, and he says, go do this. He says, love where you live, love your neighbor, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He boils it down to us. It's the great commandment. We find it in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 37. Let's look at that together. He said to them, he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on on these two commands. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. So we see that Jesus has been questioned, and and they're asking him questions, and they say, what is the most important command? Jesus says this. He boils it down to this, and he says, look, love God with all of me, and love the Lord as me. That is the most basic command that Jesus gives us. And so I know for many of us, you've been walking down this Christian road for a number of years, you've been a believer for a long time, and no matter how far you think you've come, if you're not doing this, if you're not loving the people in proximity to you, you're back at square one. You haven't taken a single step Jesus says this is the basic, this is the foundation, this is basic Christianity. The people who live around you, who work around you, that you're in proximity with, they ought to know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and they ought to feel your love and God's love coming through you towards them. This is just basic Christianity. And and I don't know about you, but when we first started this, the first time I read through The Art of Neighboring and I started hearing about this, I was a little bit s- skeptical because it doesn't really fit into our culture today. It's not really who we are as Americans. And, and I don't know if this ever happens to you, that God calls you to do something and you're kind of like, well, no, I don't think so, God. It doesn't really fit into my lifestyle. But then the more God shows it to you and you start to pray about it, you're like, okay, I guess... God, since you ask me to do it, then I'll do it. And so you, you kind of reluctantly obey and you find yourself doing the things that God's asked you to do. And then very quickly, that obedience, what was once reluctance turns into obedience and that obedience turns into joy and you find extreme joy doing exactly what God has asked you to do. And so I want to encourage you that if, if you're here this morning and you haven't participated in a neighborhood group or maybe you feel like God is calling you to, to lead a neighborhood group, it's not too late. Like I said, our group, our neighborhood, our street's on week three. I know there are some groups starting this week. There's a few groups starting next week. It's not too late. If you'll come see me and Stephen back at the Connections table, we'll make sure you have all the information you need to be able to lead a group. And I know some of you are saying, hey, we're going to do this thing, but we're just going to have a block party. We're just going to have a barbecue, and that'll be it, and we'll say that we loved our neighbors. I I really want to encourage you that the, the videos and the material that we have to hand out Man, that curriculum, that that stuff is going to get you into deeper conversation with your neighbors, and you're going to get to know them, and they're going to get to know you, and you're going to walk away from those groups uh, knowing each other and loving each other in ways that you could have never imagined. And the block parties will happen automatically. On our street, it's it's awesome. Uh, nobody ever plans a block party; they just happen. Uh, you know, eight o'clock at night. Hey, we're cooking fajitas. Come outside, everybody eat fajitas, and everybody shows up. It's just who our neighborhood is. And uh, I, I think a lot of it is because we all have the same mindset of we want to love where we live. We want to be good neighbors. We want to take the great commandment seriously. So the past few weeks, we've talked about The power of presence and how important it is if we're going to live out the great commandment that we have to be present in our neighborhoods. And then we said if we're going to be present, we realize that people bug us and so we're going to have to extend grace to them just like they have to extend grace to us. And sometimes, even though we're extending grace, things are going to pop up and there's going to be a little bit of conflict and Jesus tells us that he wants us to deal with that conflict and he wants us to deal with it quickly in a very grace-filled way. And I think there are sometimes this morning we're, we're getting to the point where we've said, okay, sometimes there's conflict and sometimes it's extremely personal and it hurts and it cuts us deeply. It wounds us. What do we do then? How do I handle that then? And the word that we're talking about this morning is forgiveness. We're talking about forgiveness. And we're going to get a little glimpse into a private conversation that Jesus has with Peter. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 21. This is a private conversation. Jesus comes to Peter one day, and he says this in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could, I, could, I, could my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, this is kind of a weird question, and where is Peter getting this number seven, right? So Peter is asking God, how many times do I have to forgive my brothers? Now, the Pharisees in those days, they said three times. Your brother does something to sin against you, and let's be clear, we're talking about sin. We're not talking about something that's just slightly offensive that we're going to get all our panties in a wad because, you know, somebody said something that we just didn't, you know, just didn't sit right with us, and so we're going to be angry about it. No, we're talking about they have done something personal to you, to hurt you personally, and they've injured you in a, in a deep and personal way. They have actually sinned against you. That's what we're talking about here. Now, the Pharisees said three times is sufficient. Your brother sins against you three times. The fourth time, you don't necessarily have to. Can if you want to, but you don't have to. So Peter takes that number three and he doubles it and then he adds one to it. And he says, hey, Jesus, look, look, I know how gracious you are. Look how good I am. I'm going to go beyond what the Pharisees do. I'm going to say seven times, seven times. And I'm sure Jesus has probably got his head in his hands like, oh, Peter, you still don't get it, do you? You still don't get it. Let's look at what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. 70 times 7. Now, Jesus, that if you're not very good at math, that number is 490. I had to do it on a calculator, so don't worry if you're not good at math. Uh, you can be a pastor too. So uh, 490. Now Jesus is not saying you need to go out and get one of those umpire clickers, you know, that they use to count balls and strikes. No, you don't sit, or, sit there and walk around uh, because I know some of you do you type A personalities. You would do that and that is not a good thing. Some of you type A ladies that are married to a type, not a type A man, you're probably already at 425 just this morning and it's 10 o'clock in the morning, right? And you're like, man, we're going to get to 400, 470, 490 by the end of the day because we always do. Uh, God is saying, no, 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 no. The whole point here is that it would be unlimited forgiveness. It would be unlimited forgiveness, that there would be no limit to our forgiveness. And the word forgiveness here means to pardon. To pardon. To release them from their guilt. To let go. Simply to, to let go, to release them, to cancel the debt. When we forgive someone, we have to be willing to, to let go. Whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever they owe you, let it go. Let it go. And I know that, that hearing that, it's very clear that this is not a human expression. This is not something that comes natural to us as human beings, to simply let something go. It's supernatural. Forgiveness is supernatural. Forgiveness originates with God. Forgiveness originates with God. We're going to see this as we move on to the next section. Verse 23, it says, For this reason... The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king. Okay, so Jesus is getting ready to tell a parable. And he's going to use the things of earth, the things that we experience in our human lives, to explain how God works and interacts with us as human beings. And so in this story, when you read about the king, you can understand that that means God. And when he talks about the servant, that he's talking about us, he's talking about people. And so he says this the king wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Now, 10,000 talents is a lot of money. In those days, 10,000 talents would be a little bit more than a life's long worth of work. That would be your entire life's work, 10,000 talents. So this man's taken out a loan, and he owes the king 10,000 talents. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Now what's happening here is that this is a very poorly collateralized loan. The man didn't have any way to back it up, and back then there was, there was no filing for bankruptcy. You couldn't just go in, take out a home loan, and say, ah, I tried my best to pay it off. I didn't quite make it. Oh well, file for bankruptcy, and everything's forgiven. It doesn't work that way. In those days, your labor counted for something. And so when you couldn't pay back your loan, they would take you and they would sell you into slavery and they would at least be able to recoup a little bit of their cost of what they they loaned you. And so the master says, okay, let's, let's sell this guy, his whole family into slavery and at least we can get a little bit of our money back. We're still gonna eat some of the loan, but at least we can get something back. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of the slave had compassion, released him, and forgave the loan. The master had compassion, he released him, and he forgave the loan. Very clearly, very clearly we understand that we are being given a picture of God and us. And what we have to understand is that God has loaned us our lives. You did not create your life You do not sustain your life. God has given you your life on loan. And all he asks of us in return as repayment is that we would live lives that honor him, that we would treat people well, that we would be honest and fair and just, that we would create a world that is selfless, that we would forgive and that we would love, that we would be a world that is not self-centered but others-centric. But every single one of us fails at that. Every single one of us fails at that. We all sin. At times, we're all self-centered. At times, we lie, we cheat, we steal. We don't treat others the way that, that we ought to treat them. Some of us are better at sinning than others, right? But the truth is, we all do it. So we don't have the ability to, to pay back the loan. We've not followed his commands. We've been selfish. We've operated in pride. We've taken revenge. And so we failed. We failed. And we're talking about sin. And as I said, we, some do it better than others, right? I can attest to that. I do it pretty well myself. And so God says that the penalty for that is going to be our life. He gives us an eternal life. And so in return for our failure to obey his commands, he's going to require us that we give him eternal life that we would be separated from him. We're talking about the idea of hell. That because of our sin, we are eternally separated from God. But just like the king in the story, we serve a God who is compassionate and gracious and merciful and forgiving. And he looks at us and he says, I see that you have no way to pay it back. I see that you could never make up the cost that you owe me. And so I am going to absorb all the cost myself. And so Jesus sends his very own son, God sends his very own son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay the debt that we owed, shedding his blood on the cross so that we could be restored, so that we could be forgiven. And you would think that as those who have put your trust in Jesus Christ, those who have been recipients of this forgiveness, that we would understand forgiveness and that we, more than anyone, would be willing to offer forgiveness to others. But that's not always the case, is it? It's not always the case. Brene Brown was... uh, She's an author, Uh, she was raised in the church, and as she got to adulthood, she walked away from her Christian faith. There were just a a number of issues that she had with the church, and then over time, God began working on her and brought her back into relationship with him. And uh, as she started coming back to Christianity, she had to face this idea of forgiveness, and this is what she said. People want love to be unicorns and rainbows. So then you send Jesus and people say, oh my God, love is hard. Love is sacrifice. Love is trouble. Love is rebellious. As Leonard Cohen sings, love is not a victory march. It's a broken hallelujah. Love isn't hearts and rainbows. It's very controversial. In order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die. Whether it's your expectations of a person or your idea about who you are, there has to be death for forgiveness to happen. In all of these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. What she's saying is what we see in Scripture, that that all the things that we have done against God, we can't just say, la, 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 pretend like they never happened. We're going to sweep it under the rug, all the hurt, all the pain. We're just going to love one another because God loves us, and we're just going to pretend like it never happened. There's not enough blood on the floor to make up for all the wrong that has been done to us and all the wrong that we have done to others. It takes the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to truly wash over our sins and the sins of others to bring us into forgiveness. As I said, as followers of Jesus Christ, those who've put our trust in Jesus Christ, who have been forgiven every single thing, every single fault that we have ever had, has been forgiven through Jesus Christ, you would think that we, better than anyone, would know how to forgive someone else. But let's see what happens in the story. The slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him about a hun- hundred denarii. Now a hundred denarii is about three months worth of work. This would be very easy for a man to be able to pay back. But look what happens. He grabbed him and started choking him. He's got the man by the throat. And he said, pay what you owe. This man who's been forgiven everything goes out and finds a man who, who owes him much less than what he borrowed. And he grabs him by the throat and he says, pay me what you owe. Pay me now. There's no forgiveness in his heart. Listen, You have received infinite forgiveness from God, and in turn, you hold forgiveness from others. You hold forgiveness for others. And we see here, it says that he, he says, pay what you owe, but he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When others, the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported this to their master, what had happened. Jesus is reminding us. He's saying, look, you have been forgiven so much. You have been forgiven more than you could ever possibly pay back. Why would you turn around and then not forgive someone else? How can you dare hold it against them? How could you do that? Why would you do that? And he goes on and he says that the king finds out about it. He says, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave all the debt because you begged me. You should, have, you should have also had mercy. You should have had compassion. You should have had feeling, understanding for your fellow slave. As I had mercy on you. And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Until he could pay everything that was owed. God has forgiven us infinitely. We have infinitely sinned against an infinite God, yet he has chosen to forgive us infinitely. And so often we're not willing to turn around when we have been sinned against in a very finite and temporal way, when someone commits some sin against us and we're not willing to forgive it. Jesus says if you find yourself in that place, if you're not willing to forgive, that what will happen to you is that you will find yourself trapped in a prison. Now some people read this and they think that they're talking about salvation and heaven and and I don't think that's at all what Jesus is talking about here because we know for a fact that when someone places their their trust in Jesus Christ that they are gods forever and that they they are secure in their, their eternal salvation. So what is the prison that Jesus is talking about? It's the prison of our own unforgiveness. And we find ourselves in bondage. But when we forgive others it provides us with freedom. When we forgive others, it provides us with freedom. Let's look at Ephesians 4.31. Ephesians 4.31. It says this. All bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting and slander must be removed, removed from you along with malice. So that's one way to live, right? Bitterness, anger, wrath, slander. That's one way to live. Here's the other way. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So the first way to live is in bitterness, anger. This is the prison that we live in, the prison of our bitterness, the prison of our anger. And then it begins to to work its way out through shouting and slander, Paul says that has to be removed from our lives along with all forms of malice. See, Paul was anticipating the future. Paul knew that, hey, I'm pretty sure not every form of slander and anger has been been created yet. He knew that Facebook was going to come. And he knew that Twitter would be out there. And he knew that we would be tempted to get on there and have a thinly veiled comment about someone who's hurt us. Or it's about something that, some, something that happened to us that everybody knows what we're talking about, but we don't actually have to use their name. And so he says, don't do that. Instead, he gives us another way to live. The way is freedom. He says, live in kindness, compassionate to one another, forgiving, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Just as God forgave you in Christ. Now, there's something interesting about bitterness, and how quickly it can take over our lives, and how how quickly um, things can take a turn. I can remember being in high school. I had a good friend. His name was George Abraham, and his family was from a a country where they eat a lot of curry. Uh, And when I say a lot of curry, I don't just mean they put a little bit on everything. I mean they put a lot of it on everything. And so I went over to his house to spend the night when I was in high school. He, he and I were in marching band together. Yes, I was a band nerd. Uh, uh, so we were in band together, and the next day we had marching practice, and it was August. So it was a little bit hot outside. So I go to his house, and, and I kind of like spicy food. I love curry. I like the way it tastes. I just never had that much of it. And so you get a nice big spoonful of this soup that has curry in it. And then the the meat and the salad and the vegetables and everything has curry in it. I'm pretty sure there was curry in the dessert. And, man, you're just, like, your mouth just can't handle that much curry. And the next day, we go out to band practice, and it's, you know, 114 degrees, probably 150 coming up off the concrete down there in Houston in the middle of August, along with about 98% humidity. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, what is that smell? Like, it's it's just this... Awful, awful B.O., and I can't get away from it. Everywhere I go, every time we get a break, I'm walking away. I'm like, man, who out here reeks? Like somebody is, is... and then I, I realize it's me. I've got curry. Not, it's like embedded in my taste buds. It's embedded in the back of my mouth, and now it is seeping out of me. This rotten smell, B.O., of curry And bitterness is the exact same way. It does the same thing to us. We have a little bit of bitterness in our lives, and before we know it, it begins to come out of us, and it begins to emanate from us. and, And some people take bitterness so far that it becomes their identity because they're not willing to forgive and move past something that happened in their past. And they become bitter, and they become angry. But Jesus says, if you forgive, it gets you out of that prison. This is something good for you that Jesus wants for you, that you would be able to forgive, that you would be released from the prison of your own unforgiveness, that you would be released from the prison of your own unforgiveness. But not only that, not only does forgiveness get us out of our own prison, but forgiveness frees the offender to move forward. Forgiveness frees the offender to move forward. How many people are locked in the prison of your unforgiveness? How many families can't move forward because these two just can't get along? How many spouses have quit trying? Because no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I'm going to mess up again. And this thing that that happened 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago is just going to come up. How many teenagers have quit trying because that one thing that they did just keeps coming up and mom and dad aren't willing to let it go and so they quit trying? How many of your neighbors have, have quit trying to relate to you because the one time that their dog barked and you never let them forget that their dog barked at 4 o'clock in the morning? And so they've quit trying to relate to you because there's no forgiveness there. They're trapped in that prison. They're trapped in that prison. Elizabeth and Frank Morris had a son. Uh, It was about Christmas time, December 23rd, when they got the call, the call that no parent wants to get. It was the hospital, and they said, your son is here in the emergency room, and you need to get here right now. You need to come immediately. When they arrived at the hospital, they were told that their son was in very critical condition, and they also found out that there was another young man in the hospital whose blood alcohol level was three times the legal limit. And this man had crossed over the median and run head-on to their son. And they found out that Tommy, the man who had hit their son, Ted, had just a few scratches and bruises, and walked away. And on December 24th, Christmas Eve, their son, Ted, died. And they became very bitter and very angry. And that only grew when Tommy was only given probation, and he walked away scot-free. It began to eat Elizabeth alive. She began to sit in her room, and she could begin to visualize and think about what it would be like to see Tommy walking down the street and to run him over and pin him against a wall or pin him against a tree and watch him suffer and die. And pretty soon she began to lose friends because all she could talk about was the death of her son and how angry she was with this other young man and how unfair it was that he was out walking around while her good son was dead. And then she began to stalk Tommy. She thought, if I could just catch him breaking his probation, then he would be put in jail where he belonged. So she began to stalk him. And pretty soon her own marriage began to suffer and began to fall apart. And one day as she was out stalking him, picturing herself, doing horrible things to him, she said, God, I've got to let this go. My life is falling apart. Lord, I need you to help me. And she began to pray and she realized that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked down at the men who had driven the nails through his hands and through his feet and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. So she began to pray for Tommy, and over time, she and her husband got to a point where they reached out to him. And in the process of reaching out to him, Tommy came to faith in Jesus Christ and put his trust in him, and they walked through with him as he went through rehabilitation, as he went through treatment. And it was, it was Frank Morris, the man whose son had been killed, who stood in the baptismal font and baptized Tommy. Tommy. And then a few years later, when Tommy met a girl that he wanted to marry, Frank, who is a part-time preacher, was the one who performed the wedding for him. And now, every Sunday, the two couples ride to church together. Tommy calls Elizabeth and Frank every evening between 4 and 5 o'clock just to say hello and to see how they're doing. And it started with Elizabeth being willing to simply forgive to simply forgive, recognizing that it wasn't fair what happened to her son, and it was never going to be fair. But she released him from that prison and allowed Tommy to move forward. She allowed him to move forward. And this is exactly what God calls us to do. Forgiveness allows us to be freed from that prison, and it allows others to be freed from that prison. And if we hang on to that unforgiveness, Jesus says that the, not only are you going to be locked in that prison, but the torturers are going to come. And you know who the torturers are. Insomnia, anxiety, depression it begins to eat you alive. And so for our own good, Jesus says, forgive. Forgive. Now I know it's at this point in, in this kind of sermon where your inner lawyer starts to lawyer up and give you all the reasons. Oh yeah, but you don't know what she did to me the day she walked out. You don't know what it was like for him to leave me when I was pregnant. You don't know what they did to me when I was 10 years old. And that inner lawyer is coming inside and, and he's telling you all these things. You know your inner lawyer is a man, right? They all are. So he's telling you all these things, and he's giving you every reason to not forgive. And so I just want to bring a little bit of clarity this morning. I want, to, want us to just look at a few things about forgiveness, uh, what it is and what it isn't. So we're going to look at some contrast to, to bring a little bit of clarity for our lives, and we'll move pretty quickly through these. So if you miss one, you can grab me at the back at the end, and, and I'll help you fill these in. But the first is, forgiveness is not reconcilia- reconciliation, it is opportunity. Reconciliation takes two people. It takes two people to to reconcile. It doesn't take two people to forgive. Forgiveness, you forgiving someone, is an opportunity to reconcile. It provides that opportunity because people are much more willing to move forward when they know that they've been forgiven. It's not reconciliation. It is opportunity. Second, it is not fair. It is grace. It is not fair. It is grace. It is never going to be fair. Whatever they did to you, there is nothing you can do. There is nothing they can do to make it fair. And so God calls us to extend grace. We can't fix it by hanging on to our anger. That won't fix things. We've got to extend grace. Number three, it's not a feeling, it is a decision. We live in a world that is dominated by our feelings, and we tell our very logical, rational mind what to do based on how we feel. And I know some of us are sitting here this morning and saying, I don't know that I can let go because of how it makes me feel. I don't think I could ever feel that way. But what we have to understand is that it's not a feeling, it's a decision. It's not a feeling, it's a decision. We have to forgive even when we don't feel like it. Next is that it's, it's not escaping, it is accepting. A lot of people think that if I forgive this person that they're going to escape the consequences. And that's just not the reality of the situation. There are many consequences. Some of those consequences will come from God. Some of those consequences will come from their own conscience or from the circumstances around them, from, from the situation that they created. Us holding on to forgiveness is not going to withhold those consequences or, or allow them to escape the consequences. It will allow us to accept that things are not fair, that things are not always going to be fair, But we're going to have to forgive anyways. Next, it's not forgiving. It is not remembering. It's not forgiving. It is not remembering. Forgetting. It is not remembering. Now, some of you are scratching your head on that one. What does that mean? Our mind has an uncanny ability to remember things. It has an uncanny ability to remember things. So the stuff that happened to you when you are a kid, you will probably never forget that. The day that he left you will probably be seared into your mind. The things that they said to you will always be there. You'll, you don't have the ability to forget those things, but that doesn't mean you have to remember them, to dwell on them, to constantly bring them up and rehash all the things that have been said or done to you. Clara Barton, the founder of the Red Cross, the founder of really modern me- uh, nursing, was at work one day and a colleague said, hey, do you remember when so-and-so said this about you? And she said, no, I don't. And they said, come on, yeah, you do. It was really awful and they, they, they kind of ruined you there for a couple months. You don't remember that? And she said, I distinctly remember deciding to forget that. I distinctly remember deciding to forget that. She said, I'm gonna let go. I'm gonna let go. I'm gonna move on. I'm not gonna let that roll around in my head and keep replaying itself. Forgiveness is not excusing, it is releasing. Forgiveness is not excusing, it is releasing. We're not saying that what happened isn't a big deal. Because oftentimes, it is a big deal. But what we are saying is that just as Jesus Christ absorbed all of the cost for our sins, we're going to absorb the cost. And we are going to release them. We're going to pardon them the same way that we have been pardoned. Lewis Smedes says this, he says, Some people view forgiveness as a cheap avoidance of justice, a plastering over of wrong, a sentimental make-believe. If forgiveness is a whitewashing of wrong, then it itself is wrong. Nothing that whitewashes evil can be good. It can only be good if it is a redemption from the effects of evil, not make-believing that evil never happened. We don't pretend that it never happened. We don't whitewash it. But we do have to offer forgiveness in order for them to be released. Next is that forgiveness is not an event. It is a process. In our elder board meeting this past Wednesday, I'd been preparing the message on Monday and Tuesday and really praying about what God wanted me to say. And there was something from my own past that came up that uh, it was an issue that happened with a colleague that I, I thought I'd dealt with. I thought I'd forgiven In fact, I can remember the day where I sat down and I prayed and I spent time in prayer. I spent time in the Word at the encouragement of one of my mentors, and I walked away that day thinking, okay, I've forgiven them. But as I started to think about forgiveness and I started to pray about forgiveness and I started to read more about forgiveness, all of a sudden these things in the back of my mind started coming up again. All the hurt, all the pain, was just like it had happened that day. So I'm telling you all these things because I'm not perfect. I struggle with this just as much as anyone else. And uh, I'd ask for you to pray for me, because I I really spent a lot of time this week asking God to help me to really release this person. And I feel like this time it stuck, right? But it's a process, it's not an event. It's a process. And I think it's going to be an ongoing thing for me to continually ask God every single day, Lord, Help me to to continually release this person that hurt me so deeply, so personally, that I could forgive them the same way that you have forgiven me. As we said earlier, forgiveness is not natural. It is supernatural. All you need to do is to go to the preschool Sunday school room for about five minutes And you will see that very early on, we learn that if you take a toy from me, I take a toy from you. If you hit me, I'm going to hit you. You bite me, I'm going to bite you back. You sue me, I'm going to sue you back. You say something mean about my mama, I'm going to say something mean about your mama. We just learn that. It's part of who we are. So forgiveness does not come naturally. It has to come from God. It has to come from God. And lastly, we see this, that forgiveness is not an option. It's an obligation. Forgiveness is not an option, it is an obligation. God, out of his kindness and mercy, has extended us grace and poured out his punishment, his justice on his very own son, Jesus Christ, in order to forgive you and restore you, to release you from the prison of your own sin. And so we, as followers of Christ, are called to do the exact same. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 says this. It says, accept one another, be forgiving of one another. If anyone, has a complaint against, uh, if anyone has a complaint against one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. How much have you been forgiven by God? Think about that for just a moment. How much have you been forgiven by God? You are called to extend the same amount of forgiveness to others. Now this morning, I I want you to just take some time as we move to take two. I'd ask that you bow your heads for just a moment. I want you to close your eyes. Just in silence, is there a face of someone that God has brought to mind to whom you need to forgive? Remember, forgiveness is not reconciliation. You don't have to go home and reach out to this person, but is there someone in your life that God is saying, I want you to forgive them. I want you to release them. As we move to take two, I would encourage you, write that person's name down. and Then write out your plan to move forward in forgiveness. Does that involve prayer? Does that involve scripture reading? Does it involve meeting with someone who can help you walk through that forgiveness? Maybe it does involve reaching out to them. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never received the forgiveness that God offers through His Son, Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, I would encourage you to ask for God's forgiveness. Scripture tells us that we are saved simply through faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. All we have to do is receive the free gift of forgiveness that God offers. What is it that God is calling to, you to do today? As we move into take two, I hope that you'll take some time. There's a space there at the bottom of your bulletin where you can write down what is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it. Let's take two.